The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Tuesday, welcome to Tech Check. I am John Fort with Carl Quintanilla and Deirdre Bosa, who is live from the Wonder Coast Summit in California's Half Moon Bay. Today, Elon Musk looking for attention by taking aim at a new target, Apple. More on that story in a moment. Plus, the status quo is gone, for media at least, according to Disney CEO Bob Iger. We will discuss that and more with WonderCo founding partner Sujay Jaswa and Jeffrey Katzenberg. And that's not all. Another star-studded day here as Tech Check's Cloud Week continues. Don't miss my interview with Amazon's Adam Solipsky and how he's handling the economic volatility later this hour. Big show ahead, D. Yes, a very large show ahead, but we're going to start today's feed with tech's growing battle of the behemoths as Elon Musk takes aim at Apple in what he calls, quote, a battle for the future of civilization. Steve Kovac joins us with more on what is at stake. Steve, there are a lot of issues and tweets to unpack here, as per usual, when it comes to Musk. Yeah, I'm going to focus on one of the tweets, though, Deed. So Elon Musk claimed in one of those tweets yesterday that Apple, quote, threatened to remove Twitter from the App Store. But look, that's not how Apple operates when reviewing apps. I've been speaking to developers about this for years, about the review process. Apple doesn't threaten removal, but they do ask for changes for an app to get an update or just overall approval if it's the first time. What really seems to be going on here major app companies regularly talk to Apple. I mean, like Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, you, you name it. It's likely that Apple gave Twitter feedback in one of those reviews, but the app is still in the store, and Apple has approved updates even since Musk took over. And look, here's another way to look at it. Twitter rival Parler was removed around January 6, 21, not because of the bad content around the riot at the Capitol. Plenty of that same content was actually on Twitter that same day. It's because Parler, by design, said it didn't have moderation. So it was kicked off and only allowed to return after adding moderation tools into the app. Twitter was allowed to stay because it was moderating those tweets and was required by that, which was required by the App Store rules for all social apps. So look, how this all started, Musk complaining yesterday that Apple cut its ad spend on Twitter, and that devolved into complaints about the 30% App Store fees and the claim that Apple made a threat to kick Twitter off the App Store. But based on how Apple has removed apps in the past, Musk would have to purposefully violate the App Store rules for Apple to take any action against them. It's sort of like what Epic Games did a couple years ago with Fortnite. And look, Musk could still do that. Taking away moderation tools like the ability for users to block trolls, that would be a violation of Apple's rules. But he hasn't done that yet. And for now, he's actually saying Twitter will be moderated as kind of an appeal to advertisers. And that's really all Apple needs right now to see based on its rules. Look, we've still had no response from Apple on Musk's claims. And I wouldn't really expect to hear from them unless they uh, decide Musk breaks the rules and makes a move to do that on purpose. So Twitter gets booted out of the App Store to make a point similar to what we saw with Fortnite. Carl, I'm going to send it back over to you. 
Uh, Steve, uh, nobody knows. Uh, the, 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 the range of outcomes is wide. Right, right, it's a great exactly. setup. Uh, thanks, Steve. Sure thing. Steve Kovac. Let's take a closer look at what is next for Apple and bring in Bernstein analyst Tony Saganaki. Joins us with a neutral rating, a 170 target. Tony, great to have you back. Good morning. Good morning, Carl. We can talk about App Store scrutiny in a moment, but the bottom line is you are uh, below consensus on EPS, and a big debate is whether or not this lost supply gets made up or not, right? Yeah, I, I think there are actually two key questions. One is how much lost supply is there and how much of that actually gets made up or um, actually is perishable. And then the second one is, is just fundamental demand. Um, is this a reasonable iPhone cycle? Apple's enjoyed two very good years for iPhone in 21 and 22, um, and we believe that a higher than um, historical percentage of its install base is upgraded. And, and so there's a question about, okay, well, if you had pretty high upgrade rates in the last couple of years, what is true demand ultimately for the, for the iPhone 14 as well? Are you saying much like we talk about PCs, uh, weakness, bloated inventories, you don't need to renew your PC or laptop every couple of years, that that same dynamic is extending to phones? Well, I, I think we've seen a relatively flat smartphone market for the last several years. And so Apple's growth in iPhone really is predicated on its ability not to necessarily find first-time users, because there aren't that many first-time users who are buying a $1,000 smartphone. It's really getting their installed base to upgrade. And when there's something really compelling, uh, they may upgrade a little bit more quickly, and therefore Apple sells more units. Um, and we think over the last couple of years with 5G offerings, upgrade rates did improve a little bit relative to 19 and 20. And so if you did have relatively high levels of upgraders over the last couple of years, you may have a tick down in that upgrade rate, which would ultimately translate into lower unit sales for Apple this year. And I think that's a question in addition to the production issues that Apple is facing in China. Talk about Elon Musk, clearly wants attention, but there have been lots of entities and people who try to poke holes in Apple's App Store business model over the years, Epic, Amazon, Google at times. Is this time any different? Or is this just an attempt uh, to, to get some leverage? Um, look, I, I think there have been many voices, John, as you suggested, Spotify among them as well. And there is a legal process ongoing in the U.S. and in other countries where Apple is being challenged legally about uh, its position as the guardian of the App Store. Um, I think ultimately uh, this will play out in the courts and, and Musk is, is, is adding to um, others' uh, frustration with the rates being charged by the App Store. And I, I think this really is largely a question about what is the fair rate in um, app developers' uh, minds, because clearly Apple is providing a service. They're providing access to you know, 1.5 billion uh, devices in their installed base, and, and they're enabling someone to, to reach out and to sell effectively to those customers. So they clearly deserve something, much like Amazon deserves something for, for uh, vendors who place product on Amazon's site. The, the question is, is 30% the right rate? It's, it's actually 30% for a subscription in the first year and then 15% thereafter. But, but that's ultimately, I, I think, at the core of the dispute. 
if the rate was 15, I think everyone would be happy. And, and clearly Musk is 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 suggesting that as well. I think he once tweeted that the that the rate is 10 times too high. I, I think that's probably hyperbole. But nevertheless, th- that's really the debate is uh, Apple is charging 30 percent, 15 percent thereafter uh, for subscriptions. Um, and that's a relatively high level. And, and that's, at essence, what's being charged and what Musk is also potentially frustrated with. Right. Hey, finally, Tony, on Tesla, uh, there's been an ongoing discussion about Musk's willingness to make himself a lightning rod and whether or not that's feeding negative momentum sentiment on the stock and maybe on the fundamentals of selling autos down the road. What do you think? Um, I, I think, look, there is clearly some risk that uh, Musk's guardian of, of Twitter um, uh, and free speech and uh, some of his statements have been polarizing to potential Tesla buyers. And, and so I think there is a potentially modest uh, negative impact to that going forward. And, and again, it's a dynamic situation, um, what Musk might be doing with Twitter. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. I do think the bigger issue for the stock, and the stock is down about 40% since October 1, is really fundamental questions about underlying demand and lead times for cars. And we're seeing that particularly in China. And, and that really is the core issue. Twitter is a contributing factor, but not the principal factor. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, a lot of factors feeding into that, uh, that demand. Uh, Tony, we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more next time. Thank you so much, as always. Tony Saganaki. Thank you. Dee. And as Carl mentioned at the top, we are here in Half Moon Bay. That's about 30 miles from Palo Alto. We're here for the Wonder Coast Summit. It is the VC founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg and Sujay Jaswa, which famously birthed the now shuttered Quibi, but has also invested in names like Robinhood, Figma, and Databricks. Today, they're hosting their annual summit where they will talk to LPs and a number of their portfolio companies and founders. It has been a challenging year for the venture capital space. Of course, the IPO market has remained largely shut. Startup valuations are falling in eggs they have been hard to come by. The latest as well, fallout from FTX, calling into question due diligence and founder worship. Nothing new here in the Valley. We will discuss all of that. And we'll also get Katzenberg's take on the latest at Disney as Iger returns. Guys, they're sitting across from me, and Jeffrey is certainly no stranger to leadership transitions at Disney or the streaming space. Yeah, uh, really interested in what uh, he has to say there. But also, this seems like a point in sort of a typical cycle in technology in Silicon Valley, right? Um, People get uh, really caught up in the compensation, in the hype around certain types of applications and services. VCs can kind of mob the the soccer ball, right? Trying to all get into the same kinds of apps. And then there's a Mm -hmm. downturn and people say, oh my goodness, that was so crazy. That was so foolish. And, you know, as, as if they, hadn't done it and fueled it in the first place. But there are always some that are a bit more conservative the whole way through. And perhaps during times like these, those people end up looking smart. Yeah, we end up, uh, well, who was it? A- was it uh, I'm trying to remember if it was uh, Gurley or another VC who said that the, the space always overreacts to whatever trend is about to, to uh, unfold. <laughs> remember that, Dean? Yeah, I can't remember who it was either, but it was on the way up and on the way down as well. So I think, importantly, how are they thinking about 2023, right? Because it's been a long time since we've had this interest rate environment. A lot of startups 
um, that we talked to today have never actually lived through higher interest rates. It's been an era of easy money. So uh, we'll be interested to get their thoughts on to how they're looking at 2023 and where they're investing. So, guys, all of that is still to come on the show. More on the state of media, private markets. Um, we have the founders, the wonderful founders, CJ Jaswa and Jeffrey Katzenberg sitting across from me still. They're up next, so don't go away. Tech Check is just starting. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Welcome back. Let's get a gut check on Disney on the heels of a headline-filled town hall from returning CEO Bob Iger. Julia Borston joins us with that. Julia? John, returning CEO Bob Iger looking to boost morale at Disney as he fielded employee questions. Sources filling us in on the conversation. Iger saying that they need to get the restructuring that he announced just last week done quickly, but they don't yet have a specific timeline. And when it comes to Disney's streaming business, Iger saying they need to shift focus to sh achieving profitability, not simply to adding subscribers at any, any cost. Iger endorsed his predecessor Bob Chapek's plans for a hiring freeze, saying, quote, we have to take a very hard look at our cost structure across our businesses. He dismissed speculation about M&A, saying he's comfortable with the assets that Disney has and that there's no urgency or even interest in acquiring any more, anything more, and that the reports that Disney could sell to Apple are, quote, pure speculation. Guggenheim responding to Iger's commentary with a note out this morning outlining three steps towards bolstering Disney's bottom line, recommending first that the company right-size Disney Plus focus on achieving the studio's peak margins and better match content investment with content engagement. Second, they recommend making ESPN's linear channel available direct to consumer outside the bundle, suggesting $30 a month. And third, they recommend separating, separating the general entertainment business out from the rest of Disney, acknowledging that that move is a long shot, but saying that investing in content outside the core Disney brands just isn't the best use of Disney's resources. Now, Iger certainly has his hands full. Shanghai Disneyland just shut down four days after reopening due to Chinese COVID requirements. So it's a lot more complex of a landscape than it was when he left the CEO role back in February 2020. Deirdre, over to you. Julia, thanks very much for that rundown. Um, for more on Bob Iger's return, the shifting media landscape, and the state of venture capital, I'm joined now by Wonderco 
Co-founding partners Jeffrey Katzenberg and CJ Jaswa at WonderCo's VC Summit. Jeffrey was also former chairman of the Walt Disney Studios and former CEO of DreamWorks Animation. Sujay was Dropbox's first executive. Gentlemen, good morning and thanks for having us. Great to be with you. Um, so Jeffrey, <laughs> let me start with you. You've lived through leadership transition at Disney. You've also lived through streaming challenges. Disney and Bob Iger have to confront both of those now at the same time. Can Iger be successful? Can he satisfy both the creatives and Wall Street? Um, I think recently the population of planet Earth uh, is now at 8 billion. Here's the thing I'm certain of. Of 8 billion people, they got the person who has the greatest chance, greatest capability to actually go solve these problems. Bob is, you know, as everybody knows, just an extraordinary executive, great leader. The culture stuff he'll have back in a snap here in it but he's also a brilliant strategist. The world has changed, the landscape is different today than it was you know, 15 months ago, but I am very confident that he will calibrate his way through what are headwinds uh, in the business today. Okay, so you're saying he's the perfect person, but isn't that kind of the problem as well? He can't find another person within the eight billion people in this world to take over for him? How is he going to find a successor in two years when he's been unable to? for well, the last few years. You, you know, you live and learn. And uh, Bob's a quick study, and I think whatever the things are that uh, the judgments that he made uh, in passing the baton last time, they will only inform him and make him smarter as he looks through that next transition. But his immediate job today is to get this ship back on course, right? And, and that is what I'm super confident, that's what he will focus on, and that's what the first 12 months should be. It's about putting Disney back on this winning path that he had it on for 15 years. Um, and that's what I'm confident he will do first and foremost. Then he has to turn his attention to succession. Can he do that all in two years? Is he going to be able to find a successor within that time? Or do you think he'll have he to be there for longer? No. What gives you that can. confidence? He, you know, just I've known him for my entire career. We've grown up together in the business. He has always been best in class. And the force is with him. The force is with him. <laughs> okay, let's, let's hope. I think investors of Wall Street hopes that the force is with someone else as well because Iger's been there for a long time and that's been one of the challenges. Uh, Sujay, yourself, as sort of, you've brought Dropbox public. You now invest in a number of founders. How difficult is it to find someone to lead sort of this world-class company? What are some of the challenges you think in the streaming space as well that maybe Disney is facing? So overall, people are the hardest. It's the most important thing in any like fast growing thing, right? If you can get the right people, you know, miracles can happen. And if you have like the best idea with the wrong people, it's a disaster. Um, I think the biggest advantage Disney has is the greatest content library in the world. And they've got, as Jeffrey said, the greatest media executive the last 20 years. Talk about streaming though as a business, because you know, a lot of these traditional media companies chase Netflix-like valuations. And then it felt like all of a sudden when the markets turned, people were saying, maybe this isn't such a good business. It's really hard to get to profitability. Yeah. Here's what I think is happening is, is that, you know, this is a moment of transition in terms of the consumer. And our business today at WonderCo is all driven by, you know, trying to anticipate the consumer, the ultimate person who is, you know, your customer here. In this case, streaming, you know, what happened accelerated 10x during COVID has actually uh, 
today sort of found it's a, a, a place that is in transition, if not transformation in it. And so I think people are having a hard time. How many uh, subscription services should I be on? Mm -hmm. You know, which ones are best suited uh, to the content and the things that I want to see? Um, are we going to go back to movie theaters? How important is that windowing of content? All of those things right now, today, Dieter, we don't know exactly what our customer wants. It's revealing itself more and more. But until that's clear, I think you're going to continue to see this sort of, you know, uh, uh, trying to gauge, like, what's the best path forward here? And it's a nuanced thing. It's not in everything or nothing. Yeah. Well, speaking of forecasting and trying to look ahead, we're here at the WonderCo Summit. You guys have a number of your founders and portfolio CEOs here. Um, as you look to 2023, obviously this year has been challenging. The IPO window has been shut. Exits are difficult. What are you anticipating, Sujay, for next year? So overall, we're, we're nervous for 2023. The, um, you know, for the first time, basically since the inception of cloud software, Forward guidance from public software companies has been below street consensus. That's a pretty good sign that people are seeing headwinds in terms of what customers are doing and the rate at which they're adopting software. The flip side of it is the best entrepreneurs and the best companies are born in tough times. And so our view is betting early, this is going to be a great window. Uh, in terms of IPO, it's probably going to be a challenge, at least until the second half until the second half of next yeah. year. Then how are you thinking about exits? I know that you guys were an early investor in Figma, which was acquired by Adobe. That's sort of what many thought was an eye-popping valuation given the macro and market backdrop. Um, are the, have the valuations come down because there were just so many enterprise technology companies that went public over the last few years? How does that affect your strategy going into 23? Well, I wish we were an early investor in Figma. We were actually a late investor in late Figma. Investor. but. Um, the, the early to the acquisition. Early to the, or before the acquisition. <laughs> the, the thing that I thought was brilliant about it for Adobe is Figma became the de facto platform for the most, you know, kind of on the ed, cutting edge designers. It was sort of the design platform of the future. And so Adobe took this window, which I don't, again, I don't know what was in Dylan's head, but maybe a year earlier, if the market was booming, he might have made a different decision around this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so if you're a large company with a ton of cash, it's a pretty exciting moment to potentially acquire or partner with some of these you know, really cutting edge technologies that might be seeing some headwinds. Right, and the latest chill over the venture capital space, Jeffrey, is the impact of FTX and the fallout. Many traditional investors had dipped into crypto. You guys yourselves were in Dapper Labs and OpenSea. How are you thinking about the crypto and Web3 space, Web space now in the fallout that's still, that's still playing out? Yeah, I, I mean, we were, we've never been a, um, uh, uh, sort of deep investor uh, in it. I think that uh, for us, it's not, um, we've, we've dabbled in it. I mean, literally $100,000 checks here mm -hmm. and there, uh, wanting to keep our fingers on the pulse of what's going on. Um, but Sujay has a great way in which he articulates how you look for value in something, and we've yet to see that in crypto. So I'll. Yeah, uh, I mean, well, what, what Jeffrey's referring everything we do is look from the customer standpoint. So if a product is better, faster, easier, or cheaper, makes life in some way those things for customers, amazing. Honestly, in crypto, we haven't seen a lot of that. And so until that happens, the real economic value, it's hard to understand where that's going to come from. It's a good way of looking at it. I know many that would agree with you. Um, gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Looking yeah. forward to the rest of the day. Thanks, Georgia. Thanks Talk for, for being with us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.
Guys, Carl, back over to you. All right, Dee, thanks. Great stuff. Meantime, CNBC's Cloud Week continues after the break with Amazon's Adam Salipsky. That's not all, though. It's also CNBC Pro Week. And do not miss a special hour-long interview with Tom Lee today at 3 p.m. Eastern time, where he'll answer your questions directly at CNBC.com slash ProTalks. You can also use the QR code on your screen for more as we've hit an air pocket here. Dow down 150, S&P south to 39.50. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. I'm Seema Modi, and this is your CNBC News Update. Home prices falling for the third straight month in September, according to the latest S&P K-Shiller report. Prices were still 10.6% above year-ago levels, but that's far less than the 12.9% increase registered in the month of August. The CEOs of supermarket chains Kroger and Albertsons have a date with Congress this afternoon. They'll testify before a Senate subcommittee as they try to defend Kroger's proposed $20 billion takeover of its rival. Lawmakers are concerned that the deal will stifle competition. Kroger CEO Rodney McMillan will be with us on Thursday on Closing Bell. The final numbers for Cyber Monday are in, with consumers spending $11.3 billion. That makes yesterday the biggest U.S. online shopping day in history, according to Adobe Analytics. Toys, electronics were especially popular this season. Miami-Dade County is suing to have the FTX name removed from the arena where the NBA's Miami Heat play. The county wants to end a 19-year naming rights agreement so it can find a new sponsor. Officials say the cryptocurrency exchange, which recently filed for bankruptcy, ran afoul of laws governing financial exchanges. John, that's the latest. Back to you. Seema, thank you. And... Hey, it's Cloud Week. And ahead of his keynote that's starting right around now in Las Vegas, I spoke with AWS CEO Adam Solipsky about the impact of the slowing economy on cloud consumption, the inflation-driven hit AWS profit margins have taken recently, and the hiring freeze, he told me, is now in place. We do see some customers who are doing some belt tightening now, but a lot of other customers are realizing that in times of economic uncertainty, that's exactly when you want to lean into the cloud. That's the time you want to capture the cost savings. That's the time you want flexibility to both uh, burst as well as shrink your infrastructure capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's the time you want to figure out how to still innovate with fewer resources. I'm wondering about profit pressures in the business. Um, Operating margin went to 26.3% from 29, I think, in the last quarter. Wage and energy inflation is a big part of that, as it is for so many others. Any relief in sight there? Well, I, th- I think that AWS's uh, scale 
uh, at which we operate is, is a huge help to our customers. So if you, you mentioned the energy uh, prices, and of course we're not immune to, uh, to energy prices, but uh, you know, we were able to uh, uh, forecast and uh, absorb a, a lot, of, lot of different variations and different uh, prices for different types of energy around the world. Uh, we've got long-term supply contracts uh, locked up. We have large teams who deal with nothing besides you know, procuring energy and other uh, parts of our global infrastructure. So I, I think part of the value proposition we offer customers is being able to help uh, buffer them, if you will, from these different ups and downs uh, and uh, different elements of their cost structure that they'd have to deal with on their own. So, so is, is one way to look at it then that because of your scale and ability to deal with these things, you're willing to take the short-term margin hit because you're able to smooth that out for customers who see that as part of the value proposition of being with AWS? Well, we have a long history of uh, lowering prices, not raising them, so I think we've, we've lowered prices over 115 times in our 16-year history. And the way we do that is to innovate and to lower our own costs, and then we, we just have a philosophy where we generally pass those savings along to customers in the form of, of lower prices. So I think our behavior has been highly consistent, and um, sometimes things happen which really help our cost structure. Of, of course, there are going to be things that happen that uh, are, at least in the short term, a little detrimental to the cost structure. But uh, over time in our history, we've really just absorbed all of those and given customers a, a certainty and a continuity, which most of them have been unable to achieve on their own. How are you approaching your own uh, staffing? Um, certainly salaries, there's still pressure on those to go higher, but there have been certain areas where you've frozen hiring, other areas where you continue to hire. How is that trending as we look into 2023? Uh, well, John, as you mentioned uh, at the outset, it is a time of, of significant economic uncertainty uh, along quite a number of different dimensions. And AWS has hired a tremendous number of people uh, worldwide for a number of years. And I'm talking all business functions from engineering to marketing to uh, sales to customer support to finance to HR and legal. Uh, and so we, we feel very well resourced at the moment. Uh, we are, uh, along with the rest of the company, uh, taking a short uh, pause in hiring and going to keep our headcount levels where they are for now. Uh, I think we can still deliver you know, great technical solutions and great customer service uh, to our customers, given the substantial uh, team that we have in place today. We feel really good about that. So you said a short pause, but we're in Q4, and I think there are still questions about um, how well that goes and, and how we start 2023. What's short and what are the most important signals that you're watching for in that? Well, we don't have any specific timetable announced. I think we'll, uh, as, as you implied, we'll you know, kind of get through this quarter and, and into the next quarter, take a look at, uh, at what's happening. Um, I, I think as always, you know, we, we, Amazon takes the long view, uh, builds with a, a very long-term mindset, uh, far longer than most companies. So we will, at the end of the day, be primarily focused on what is it that our customers need us to build and what's the best path for us to help get them there. And we will invest in you know, many, many different projects in AWS as well as across the broader company. And uh, we will be you know, unafraid to, uh, to double down in areas where we think are really going to add value for customers. And so I think the real signals are going to be where we see customers uh, either you know, using services or coming and asking us about things that they need from us in order to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. Hmm. I also spoke to Slipsky about whether the bulk of cloud adoption has happened already, reducing the potential for revenue growth. He said there's a lot more growth ahead and pointed to Amazon's custom chip development as a driver of that growth.
I respectfully beg to differ. We talked to uh, some of the biggest enterprises in the world who, though, although they have moved a lot of workloads and a, a lot of dollars of IT, uh, for them it's still a fraction of what they intend to move. So uh, very recently I was talking with one large global financial services leader and uh, they came to us and said, hey, we've been a, a big and growing customer, but we want to lean in really deeply now. We want to move thousands of more applications uh, to the cloud. We're seeing that all the time across many different countries, uh, across many different industries. So uh, we honestly do think it's very early. What is going to be the, not lowest hanging fruit, but the highest fruit that AWS is uniquely positioned to pick? Uh, we were talking earlier about the teams that you're deploying to help customers get the most value out of AWS and the platform. Is that where a lot of the potential is in that deeper, more customer-targeted or industry-targeted solution? Uh, well, I think there are a few areas that are going to be you know, very important fruit uh, for us to help our customers pick. Uh, I think, by the way, it does start all the way down at uh, chips, at silicon. So AWS for a decade has invested in our own chip uh, design program, and we're now into our you know, third generation of our uh, Graviton chips. And, uh, we have competitors who've announced other chip projects, but they've yet to really de deliver anything compared to what AWS is, is delivering today. And uh, having those uh, really efficient, uh, really powerful chips is incredibly important for things like uh, very compute intensive machine learning workloads, which are happening a lot today and have you know, enormous, enormous amounts of data and enormous computational requirements. So it's not just about the higher level applications, uh, really having those deep, deep capability still remains really important. Isn't it also important for efficiency and cost savings? If you can design chips that are specifically for certain types of workloads and then move customers to those and uh, run those workloads efficiently, you don't have to charge as much. That's exactly right. And, and, and that's why it's so important that we, we really uh, continue to uh, design and uh, put into customers' hands these very specialized uh, compute capabilities which are uh, based on our own, our, our own chip development. So take machine learning. Uh, so you've got two basic buckets in machine learning. You've got uh, training the models and then you know, running inferences on the models, getting results from the models. And uh, those are two very different workloads. And so for the, for the Tranium, we have our, uh, our uh, chip focused on Tranium, which is our uh, uh, TRN1 uh, instance has our Tranium chip. And then for, for running inferences, for running the models and gener generating results, we have our uh, Inferentia chip, which is inside of a bunch of different compute instances. And those two things look very different from each other. And it's really important for the, uh, for the, the speed as well as the price performance and the cost effectiveness of being able to run those workloads that our customers have those options. And nobody else gives anybody the, the number of options that, that we do. Just in compute, we now have over 600 different compute instance types, which is more than anyone else. There is a lot more of that conversation. We'll post the full conversation on Tech Checks LinkedIn and on the Fort Knox YouTube channel after uh, this afternoon, after Solipsky's keynote is done. We talk uh, about a little news there that we can't front run quite yet. Don't miss my working lunch segment coming up on Power Lunch with some of that as well. D, the um, strategic importance of custom semiconductor development important here. I also talked to him about Intel specifically, who's a partner potentially in that, uh, particularly access to domestic chip supply, given all that's happening in Asia. Solipsky had something to say about that as well. 
It was a great conversation, wide-ranging, John. I especially liked his comments on scale. Sometimes we forget because it was so many years ago, but Amazon was really first in the cloud space. They had a huge lead, and they are incredibly profitable. You compare that to a Google Cloud, which is a distant number three, but investing billions and billions into the space. The fact that Amazon is able to sort of eat some of the costs in terms of energy and other places for its customers and trying to make it more affordable to their cloud customers, that's going to be tough for Google because they're trying to gain market share here and their business is still unprofitable, though the profitability is getting better. I'm not saying, of course, that Ruth Port or the team is going to pull back on those investments, but it will make that a little bit harder for them, especially as they're still on that path to profitability. Yeah, and Carl, just about everybody's got an unprofitable business that they're subsidizing. For Amazon, it's retail, <laughs> right, and shipping Good at point. this point. Good point. And the cloud profits are helping with that, as well as the cloud profits helping to subsidize, uh, you know, customers' inflationary pressures. Uh, Google, of course, has the profitable ads business subsidizing the cloud as they try to stand that up. But maybe, maybe everything's profitable at Apple. Maybe that's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, interesting. You know, Bernstein's got a good note today looking at headcount reduction across tech. And they say that uh, Google and Meta are the most productive on a revenue per employee basis, but that Amazon is definitely turning the corner as they took action, as you know, to reduce headcount. That was great, John. Uh, still to come this morning, ARK Invest Kathy Wood forecasting a market slowdown ahead. But in her words, that may not be a bad thing. We're going to discuss that next. Stay with us. During our CNBC Pro Talks yesterday, ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood spoke out in defense of her investing strategy despite her flagship innovation ETF losing nearly two-thirds of its value amid this year's downturn. Take a listen. If we are correct, truly disruptive innovation today is priced in the, in the uh, global equity markets at roughly $7 trillion. That $7 trillion, if we're right, is going to go to $210 trillion by 2030. So that is a 30-fold increase. People say, impossible. But that's what happened to Tesla uh, from our early days with it uh, in you know, less than uh, uh, or fewer years than seven. Of course, John, uh, people say impossible, in part because uh, her near-term returns have not been good. She's sort of on her back foot here. Yeah, uh, times like these, Carl, I reflect on that classic investing disclaimer. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Looking back at the sort of Fed-fueled, low-interest-rate-fueled craziness as an indication of what's possible, I'm not sure that is possible going forward. And, D, I look forward to seeing if her... Uh, if her strategy has become more informed by reality. Yep, and remember, too, she recently had that call on Bitcoin to reach a million dollars apiece by 2030, saying it'll benefit from the FTX follow. People still pay attention to what she says despite the performance this year. Quick programming note as we had to break. Do not miss another day of star-studded talks from CNBC's Pro Week. Today's guest is Tom Lee. Tune in at 3 p.m. Eastern for a special hour-long interview. Head to cnbc.com slash protalks for more. Tech Check is back in two.
Let's get a gut check on Roku. KeyBank downgrading the stock to sector weight today as the firm forecasts a tough road ahead to achieving profitability. Noting Roku appears to be losing market share and has greater debt in its ad tech stack than expected. Shares, though, defying that negative commentary up about 1%. The stock has had a rough run, though, down nearly 80% just this year. Tech Check is back in a moment. Turning to China, as protests continue to erupt across the country over these COVID controls, authorities are reportedly attempting to track activities on messaging apps and censor any signs of conflict online. Joining us to discuss today, author of Now I Know Who My Comrades Are, Emily Parker, who's got a key look at Internet activism in China. Emily, I'm curious to know how you think that new development of uh, monitoring which apps you have, monitoring even what uh, posts you like, is moving the needle on their policies? So this has always been a strategy in, in China. I wouldn't say this is going to be a decisive action, though, because the thing to understand about Internet activism in China is that the real red line is not so much what you say, it's what you do. So the real red line here is using WeChat or Weibo or any of these other Chinese social media platforms to actually organize protests. And that's going to be where the real sensitivity is. Now, of course, as you said, there's ways to track, but I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the, the real danger here. The real danger is if somebody were to use these platforms and say, okay, there's a protest in this area at this time, come join me here. Because what, what the red line for China tends to be collective action, you know, more freedom of assembly versus freedom of speech. And I think that's why these protests are just so significant because, you know, we're seeing protests in, it's not like protests don't happen in China, but the nature of these protests, which are protests in various cities united for a common cause. That's the part that I think is really dangerous to the, the Chinese government because it's like these protesters are all, it's a, it's a collective type of resistance. And I think that's very, very unusual in China. Right. That, that's true. And certainly the, the video over the weekend, much more easy to, uh, to obtain given social media. Uh, it's been remarkable. But there are those who argue that the leadership has already sort of course corrected balancing uh, COVID with the economic concerns and that they're looking for ways to give them an off-ramp, an explanation as to why they'll start to reopen. Do you think that's too glib? You know, anger has been simmering now for a really long time. And if you go back to the Shanghai lockdown, which was around, I think, April, and you looked at what people were saying then, if you went to WeChat and you did, there was like an explosion of rage. So this rage has just been simmering and simmering and simmering. And for the most part, it had been online and now it's gone into the streets. But the problem is the Chinese government has kind of painted themselves into a corner because if they were to loosen zero COVID and kind of lighten up, and especially with Chinese New Year coming, you could see a a, a surge in infections and deaths. And that's what they've been trying to prevent this whole time. And I think sort of the, the tension here is that, you know, you have a, a leadership in China, which is so powerful and takes responsibility basically for everything. But the, the dark side of that is that when things go wrong, people will also blame them, right? So if they mm. suddenly if they suddenly reverse course on COVID and there's a surge of deaths, they will be blamed for that. And I think that's part of the calculation here. So it's kind of hard for them to know how to move forward. Most likely, we'll probably see some sort of incremental changes. But right. I think the key thing to remember here is, is that the anger is not going to just disappear. Emily, does this make Chinese aggression toward Taiwan in the medium term more or less likely? Is it less likely because they've got things to deal with closer to home or more likely because that could be a unifying uh, action that, that could bring people back under the Communist Party banner? 
It's a very interesting question. I, I would say it's too early to say any kind of correlation right now because, you know, there's so much happening with this specific thing. But I mean, it's definitely something that's worth watching, but I wouldn't want to speculate on the correlation there. Emily, appreciate that. Obviously a fast moving story. Uh, look forward to chatting with you about it in the future. Emily Parker. Dee? We will take a look at the broader markets. The Nasdaq is down almost 1%. We'll be back in just a moment. Getting some headlines out of D.C. on a potential resolution to the rail dispute. And for that, we'll turn to Elon Moy. Morning, Elon. Carl, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that her chamber will vote tomorrow on a bill that would force rail workers to accept a contract agreement and avert a potentially catastrophic strike. Now, Pelosi and other congressional leaders met with President Biden at the White House this morning. She said that the agreement doesn't include everything that she would like to see, but that weighing the equities, we must avoid a strike or else jobs would be lost. Now, this bill would also have to clear the Senate. Uh, the two top uh, Senate uh, Republicans and Democrats, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell, have both said that they want to see a bill to avert a rail strike passed quickly. So we will see if that indeed happens. But again, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi saying that her chamber, at least, will vote tomorrow on a bill to avert that rail strike. Carl. Uh, Elon, as we were talking, there's uh, uh, McCarthy talking about uh, Nick Fuentes and saying that uh, the party, uh, there's no room for that kind of uh, anti-Semitism in the Republican Party. Talk to me also about the possibility of government funding. Obviously, the meeting covered a bunch of different issues. Yeah, absolutely. So there seems to be a consensus among congressional leadership, at least, that they would like to see a full omnibus spending bill approved before the end of the year rather than potentially a long-term stopgap funding bill. However, a lot of work still needs to be done on that omnibus bill, including agreement on the top-line numbers for both domestic and defense spending. So those negotiations are still underway. But remember, the government runs out of money on December 16th, so lawmakers are really under the gun here to reach some sort of agreement. So there might be a short-term bill that gives them a little more time to iron out all the details, but it seemed like the consensus from this meeting is that they want to do a full-year omnibus spending bill in order to fund the government. Uh, Elon, thank you. Two very important topics uh, getting covered in that meeting with the president. Uh, Elon Roy, thank you in Washington. Uh, finally, John, uh, we've been waiting uh, last couple days to get into the earnings we're going to get, and it's going to get started tonight with Intuit and Workday and more. Intuit, particularly important, I think, D, because of the health of the small business customer for uh, enterprise-grade software. Carl? Great stuff, guys. Uh, as we see the markets rebounding from a little bit of a spill on some Apple weakness. Let's get to the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.